This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we're joined by John Baugh, the president of the Linguistic Society of America. If you're an audiologist or speech-language pathologist, you're going to encounter a lot of differences in the way people speak. We've discussed dialects and accents on the podcast in the past. Today's guest continues those conversations by providing history and context for the way we speak in the U.S. He shares how language is used to discriminate against people because of the way they speak, which he refers to as linguistic profiling. From legal proceedings to apartment leasing, John provides examples of how linguistic profiling can affect lives. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Communication Strategies for Autism, supporting engagement, self-advocacy, and transitions. This continuing education opportunity begins November 30th. Save $100 when you register by November 10th. Learn more at on.asha.org autism22. Joining us now is John Baugh. John is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. He brings a wide array of lenses to examine and analyze the way we speak. He's a professor of linguistics, psychology, anthropology, education, English, and African and African-American studies. John is the president of the Linguistic Society of America. He joins us today for a conversation about dialect, how we speak in America, and issues of discrimination related to how we speak. John Baugh, welcome to ASHA Voices. Thank you so much, J.D. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm very happy you're here. I've wanted to invite you on the podcast since I saw you speak at the 2021 ASHA convention. And since the 2022 ASHA convention is coming up very soon, I thought this was the perfect time to invite you on the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. And I had a wonderful time last year. Your colleagues in ASHA were generous and kind. I had an opportunity to see old friends and meet some new friends. So it was a very generous and thoughtful audience. And uh, as I mentioned to them, you do very important work to, you know, help improve the lives of so many people. And it was an honor to be invited to speak to your membership. At the presentation, you spoke about dialects in the U.S. and linguistic discrimination. As a part of that presentation, you shared stories from times you were acting as an expert witness. I want to ask you about a few of those later in the show. But to begin, I wanted to ask you about research you did into linguistic discrimination or linguistic profiling. This was over the telephone in the late 80s. Uh, I understand it was when you were beginning to look for housing. Right. I got into this work quite by accident because... For any listener that doesn't know me or hasn't seen me, my voice is that of a professional scholar. I'm a PhD in linguistics and have been fortunate enough to be well-educated. But many people who listen to me and don't know me don't realize I'm African-American. And in the work that I began on linguistic profiling, I fell into that quite by accident because as I was looking for some new uh, rental housing myself in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was always granted an appointment whenever I called over the phone uh, and especially explaining I'm a visiting professor from out of town. I need a place to rent for me and my family for about a year. Can I come look at the, you know, apartment or house that you have advertised? And 
100 percent of the times I was told absolutely I was given appointments. But on a few of those occasions, when I showed up in person, I was told that there had been some mistake. And my instincts told me that the reason that they were denying that, that there was a mistake wasn't because the apartment or house wasn't available, but rather that they then had visual confirmation that I was African-American. And my speculation was, had they been able to detect that during the phone call, they might have said, oh, I'm so sorry, the apartment or house isn't available. And because of some unique characteristics in my own life, having grown up in inner city Philadelphia and Los Angeles, I am adept at modifying my own speech to convey different uh, dialects. And so I began to conduct some experiments where I would modify my speech. And, you know, American dialects vary throughout the country for a variety of reasons. And as someone who grew up in an inner city black neighborhood, once I became a professional, this life experience where I had been told, oh, we're so sorry, uh, that apartment's already been rented, you know, led me to some experiments where I started calling around, but using different dialect renditions to test whether or not your dialect might influence the likelihood that you'd be given an apartment or not. What strategies did you use when making these calls to see if it might be based on linguistic profiling and and not because maybe the apartment was already rented? Right. Well, at that time, so I'm the person that coined the concept of linguistic profiling, and I didn't call it that at the time. I mean, at first, I was just conducting research to see if there was bias based on a controlled linguistic experiment. And more than that, I wanted to determine whether or not that bias might be influenced by something as slight as intonation or prosody or timbre, rather than any grammatical differences. So I always use the phrase, hello, I'm calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. If you modify your dialect and you say, hello, I'm calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. And I grew up in Los Angeles. And so I call back and say, hello, I'm calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. So your listeners can hear that it's me. But the importance of this particular experiment was I did not modify any of the grammatical structure or the words that I used. And so to the extent that I got a reaction, it was based on people's reaction to the, the intonation and the prosody and the timbre of my voice, not the actual linguistic content of what I was saying. And, you know, depending upon the neighborhood, the results were really quite striking. And that's when I realized that there was discrimination potentially based on the sound of one's voice. And that work happened almost within, you know, a few years after the concept of racial profiling had been introduced. And that's when it dawned on me that a linguistic dimension of that was taking place. When you were changing your voice, what were you doing? Were you changing uh, dialect and accent? or No, just accent. That's a great point, right? And the, the general public will often use dialect and accent interchangeably. 
and shame on me as president of the linguistic society that I, you know, don't always make that clear in a podcast. But for your audience, yes, I was manipulating my accent, not my dialect, where we are identifying dialectal features as unique grammatical properties that differ within the same language and accent as being primarily focused on pronunciation. But both may be subject to linguistic profiling, I would assume? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it t- once you have dialectal features kick in, you know, then it can be even more pronounced. So, you know, if I said, I'm getting ready to go to the store versus I'm fixing to go to the store, that's a dialect difference. And fixing to can trigger a very strong reaction to those people who devalue it or, or think it's not proper English. I want to ask you just a little bit more about dialects in just a second. But before that, I kind of want to finish up what we were talking about with these phone calls. What was kind of the results of all of the phone calls looking for apartments that may be available using different accents? I will answer that question, then I'll go a step further. In order to do this experiment and to test whether or not discrimination might exist, I would toss a coin and based on the coin toss, I would use one of the two minority rendition dialects as my initial call. I always had different phone numbers as return phone numbers and I use different names associated with the different dialects. And some people might say, you know, and I never, I mean, unless I was asked my name at the end, I tried very much to initiate the hello. I would, when the person answered the phone, I would try to say, hello, I'm calling about the apartment. I didn't say, hello, my name is, and then answer it. Because I potentially, if I say my name is Carlos, or David, then someone might say, aha, they're reacting to the name. And I wanted very much to control whether or not I was getting reactions to the accent. And in the vast majority of cases, when I used my professional voice, there would be more extenuating conversation. When I used the minority renditions, I was often told, oh, I'm so sorry, it's not available, or if it is available, then, you know, we would follow up. But I would then wait a while, no less than probably two to three hours and perhaps a day or two to call back using the other minority dialect rendition and then waiting also a staggered period of time before I would call back. And the third rendition would always be my professional voice. And the reason that I set up the experiment in that way rather than fully randomizing all three voices, is so that if I had used my professional voice first and had been granted an appointment, and then I call back and I use my Chicano dialect, and I'm told, I'm so sorry, the apartment's not available. Well, under that circumstance, they might have been waiting for that first person to come and look at the apartment. But the pattern that showed the discrimination was rejection, rejection, acceptance, right? And so it it was a very carefully controlled experiment. But I want to take it a step further. I never counted any calls where I 
reached an answering machine, which, which happened fairly frequently. And I only included information in my research when I reached a person to talk to, right? And so that took a fair amount of time. Well, two sociologists, Doug Massey and Garvey Lundy, in 2001, they replicated my research design with the exception that they kept track of how many times they got callbacks when they left a message on an answering machine right and there their research showed that the linguistic profiling was even worse than what i had imagined because there were they proved that in many instances unscrupulous landlords were using the answering machines to decide who to call back and who not to call back and from a legal point of view the assumption on their part that is the unscrupulous landlords was that, you know, if their defense was, I've never spoken to this person, how could I possibly have discriminated against them? I've never met them. I've never talked to them, right? But because they used an answering machine, we know that they heard different voices and they only called back the voices of the well-educated white speakers. From that, that pattern was also striking. And it just never occurred to me to keep track of the answering machines. That's one of the wonderful things about research and experiments is other people read your article and they get their own ideas to either test your hypothesis or maybe modify it in some way. But in hindsight, of course, I should have been keeping track of the answering machines. I just didn't think of it initially. Yeah. I want to continue on, and we're talking about dialects just a little bit, and I was hoping you could give us a greater understanding of how dialects, and I know this is a big question, but kind of a condensed understanding about how dialects have evolved in the U.S. There are a lot of different dialects in the U.S., and I'm wondering, is it because of the size of the country that so many people have immigrated here, that there's so many different cultural backgrounds, but can you give us a little overview of the dialects in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a wonderful question and a reflection of some very unique historical circumstances that are unique to this country, right? So in 1400, prior to any European contact, you have a multilingual continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and it's all Native American languages. And then in 1607, Jamestown is settled in Virginia with the first English speakers that come from London, and they establish their you know, community with their London accent. And the Pilgrims come in 1620 to Massachusetts from Plymouth, even though they were trying to go to New York, but they came from a different region. In fact, they originally came from the Netherlands. Those initial settlements, right, at that point, Native American languages are not displaced. English is just getting its earliest toehold in the country. Those early settlements happened at a time where the most rapid mode of transportation on land was by horse or horse or horse and buggy carriage, right? So the 13 colonies, as they were settled by immigrants 
from throughout Europe, right? New York used to be called New Amsterdam because it was settled by the Dutch, okay? And the Spanish colonization in Florida meant that Spanish got a foothold there before English did. And those 13 original colonies are composed of Europeans who bring their heritage languages from Europe and indigenous American languages are beginning to be displaced, but not on a massive scale. Fast forward, and the rest of the United States is developing at a time where the Industrial Revolution is also taking place. The invention of the steam engine, the creation of the railroad, that happens as our nation is expanding westward, along with the horrific displacement of indigenous people. And I, I use the adjective horrific because they were exterminated for, you know, I mean, I, I'm not trying to get into politics here, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that the westward expansion of the United States came at the expense of the native populations that were here. Those people and their languages declined as more and more people came from other places. And so it's that overall combination plus wave after wave of immigrant groups coming from everywhere around the world that results in different dialects. And before I get off this subject, I want to emphasize that the African-American dialect is spoken by slave descendants has a unique history in comparison to all of the groups that came voluntarily. Why? Because no matter whether they came with money or in poverty, they came with others that spoke their same language. So what happened to the slaves? Well, the slaves were separated by language on the west coast of Africa whenever possible because slave traders wanted to prevent uprisings during the Atlantic crossing. If you've got a bunch of people together that you've captured and you're trying to enslave and they all speak the same language, the likelihood of a revolt increases. So it's in your best interest if your business is the sale of human beings to make sure that the likelihood of them revolting is reduced. And so by separating them even before the Atlantic crossing, that's the reason that no African languages survived the Atlantic crossing intact, unlike Vietnamese or Korean or French or German or Italian, where people who chose to come to America could do so even though they didn't speak English, they spoke to others who spoke their same language. Slaves did not have that opportunity. And additionally, slaves were denied the opportunity to read and write. And so all of that accounts for the dialect diversity in the country and the complex linguistic landscape of the United States. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that in-depth but uh, brief well, overview well, of uh, how we got I, to where we are. I am honored to be president of the Linguistic Society of America, and it's a combination of old age and hard work that I know these facts that are not commonly known. For years, you know, especially the African-American dialect, it was dismissed as improper English spoken by people who weren't intelligent enough to learn to speak properly, right? The linguistic historical facts that I just shared 
once people know them, if they're open-minded, there's an aha moment. And racial bigots tend to dismiss it. You know, you know, he's an African-American professor. Of course, he's going to say something like that. But the facts speak for themselves. And I'm a scientist and I'm telling you things that people can check. If John's research into linguistic profiling sounds familiar to you, maybe you've heard it referenced on a previous episode of the podcast. In February, we published an episode featuring two SLPs sharing tips for working with students who have a dialect that may be different than your own. Find the episode Dialects in the Classroom in the podcast archive, and we'll link to it on the blog post for this episode at on.asher.org podcast. We'll be back in just a moment with more from John Ba. When we return, he shares a story from his work as an expert witness. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Communication Strategies for Autism, supporting engagement, self-advocacy, and transitions. This continuing education opportunity runs from November 30th to December 12th. You can earn up to 2.1 ASHA CEUs. Save $100 when you register by November 10th. Learn more at on.asha.org autism22. In the second half of our conversation, I wanted to ask John about a specific part of his presentation at the 2021 ASHA convention. John works occasionally as an expert witness, and the experiences he shares from that role exemplify the concepts we discussed. Because I work with audio and transcriptions, one story stuck with me. It involved a single word in a sentence that was possibly missing, and if it were missing, it would change the meaning of the sentence with the potential for big consequences. This was a a murder case where the defendant, who is an African-American man who speaks with a very strong African-American vernacular dialect, was recorded while he was in jail having a conversation with his cousin about strategies for his trial. And because he was in jail, his, uh, his telephone conversations were recorded and the content of those were admissible in court. And the prosecutor tried to say that he had actually admitted guilt to his cousin. And his cousin said, well, hey, why don't you do a speedy trial to kind of get this over with? And the defendant said, well, I'm going to do a speedy trial when I know I ain't committed this shit. All right. Now, in rapid speech, in black dialect, the phrase, I know I ain't committed this doesn't fully articulate ain't with a hard T sound before the ensuing stop consonant committed, right? And so what happened was the prosecutor transcribed it as, why would I have a speedy trial when I know I committed this, right? And the prosecutor said, aha, that's the smoking gun. That's an admission of guilt. We've got him. And what I was able to do through a series of experiments was to show that the only difference between those two sentences was a nasalized diphthong, a vocalic nasalized diphthong after the word I. And perceptually, it's not that easy to hear. But the difference between I committed it and I ain't committed it, you know, even though it's only one nasalized phoneme, it's the difference between the admission of guilt and the denial of guilt. That was a hugely important and impactful 
analysis. And it was also, you know, I don't know if I went into this or not at the presentation, but in order to make the transcription clear to the jury, the prosecutor made other mistakes. I don't know if they were willful or not, but he didn't faithfully produce the entire sentence. So I, while I was testifying, I was able to point out several of the transcription errors that were made on behalf of the prosecution. I certainly didn't say they did it intentionally, but I could point out that here's what the prosecutor said the transcript says. I had, you know, the, the judge allowed the jury to listen to the recording and compare it with my transcription. And everyone could see that my transcription was, in fact, more accurate. But then when we zeroed in on this phoning, that was harder to hear. And that's when I had to introduce the comparative spectrographic analysis. And that's tricky in front of a jury because when you're presenting scientific evidence to non-scientists, you've got to keep it so that it it's understandable to them and that they're not you know, assuming that you're just trying to pull the wool over their eyes. So testifying as an expert witness has complexities that I didn't anticipate until I had done it a few times. But it's fascinating. And um, for me, it's very important work. I, do, I don't advertise any of the work that I do in forensic linguistics. And one of the reasons for that is that I don't just accept any every case. And even though there are people that make a lot of money as expert witnesses, I don't need to do that. And I choose to work on cases once I hear the facts and whether or not I think I can be helpful. And most of the cases that I work on do benefit people who are not very wealthy, who speak with a strong dialect, who might not have access to the type of expertise that I can offer because they don't really have the kind of money to mount a very robust defense at their own expense. Mm -hmm. I want to go back briefly. You mentioned the spectral analysis and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's where the frequencies of the voice can be seen visually. If you watch it play uh, across, you can see the kind of sound wave move and where the frequencies spike. And when you brought that up, were you able to see, I know I committed or the possibility that it was actually, I know I ain't committed. Was there a difference between those yeah, two? You can see, there was a visual difference between the two, but there were also similarities in the contours, right? So I know I committed and I know I ain't committed the full phrases are going to have a great deal in common, right? But what I was able to point out was where they were not sharing a commonality, and that had to do specifically with the pronunciation of the nasalized negative vowel sound to convey, I ain't committed it. The concern that I had, and I certainly wasn't with the jury, when you're on the witness stand, you can see the jury, and you can see the extent to what it looks like they're paying attention or they're not paying attention. The jury was a multiracial group. I didn't have a conversation with them, right? But in looking at a multiracial group, 
I wondered to myself how many of them are native speakers of English and how many of them might be have might know English as a second language. And if you know English as a second language, the challenge of deciphering these slight differences in dialect, it can be more complicated. There's no way I, as a professor, could, you know, say to the judge, well, your honor, I'm really interested in the linguistic backgrounds of the jurors and the extent to which they might be more or less equipped to understand these subtle distinctions in African-American dialect, right? I mean, in the interest of justice, that might have been an interesting thing. In terms of court procedures, I can't do that as an expert witness. John Baugh, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure, JD. And thank you for the professionalism with which you've addressed these issues. It's been a pleasure to work with you. John Baugh is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis and the president of the Linguistic Society of America. Find more episodes of the podcast discussing dialects and differences in how we speak. I'll put links to those episodes on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org podcast. Find all the details for the 2022 ASHA convention at asha.org. We'll put a link to the convention page on the blog post for this episode as well. That's at on.asha.org podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, communication strategies for autism, supporting engagement, self-advocacy, and transitions, and it begins November 30th. Save $100 when you're registered by November 10th. Learn more at on.asha.org autism22. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.